Here Be Dragons is a podcast of Christ City Church in Vancouver, BC, Canada. Here, we'll aim to talk about what it means to faithfully follow Jesus in our post-Christian context, all with the aim of making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you'd like to know more about Christ City Church and get connected to a neighborhood church, you can email info at christcitychurch.ca. Well, welcome to the Here Be Dragons podcast. My name is Jake. I'm joined today by Paul Fast Jr. to talk about hunting. And by hunting, I don't mean hunting for a great deal online. I'm thinking about the kind that involves multiple days out in the wilderness, some sort of weaponry, uh, all for the aim of killing an animal and harvesting its meat. What should Christians think about hunting how might they participate faithfully in this subculture? And to help us think about this, I've got Paul with us today, an avid hunter, a Christ City Church elder, and someone who deeply loves Jesus. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. We're talking about hunting today. What is it about hunting? So as I think about hunting, I think of like a father and his son, mm. a father and, and or his multiple sons. I got four of them. You've got a few as well. Three. I have more than you now. You've got a lot of hunting in your future. I've right? got a lot of hunting in my future. We should begin by acknowledging I've never shot a gun before. Whereas the previous episodes, I've you know done fitness before. Yeah. I've played video games before. This is probably the most outside of my comfort zone of these episodes that we're doing in this season yeah. out of any of them. And so I have to acknowledge it from the beginning. What is it about hunting uh, that it seems like this generation to generation sort of passed on thing? Like, how, how, how does that work? How did that work in your own life? Um, well, I, I think, I think hunting is a generational thing because it um, like, it's so immersive and it takes over, who you are as a person to a certain degree. And it's really about, it becomes an, a part of your identity. And so that's not something you just kind of, it's not, it's not a hobby. It's right. not something you, you pick up for a while, for a few years, and then you cast aside. So it, it's, it becomes part of your DNA in a sense. And, and so I think for that reason, you tend to want to do those things with the people closest to you, right? With your kids and so forth. And, you know, my, my own journey into hunting was, was a, a little different than that because I grew up, um, I would say I was always a hunter. I just didn't actually start, you know, going out and taking animals until later on in my life. And I say that yeah, because I, there was something in me that wanted to pursue animals that wanted to be deep inside creation okay. and like explore. It wasn't that, that you were like the sadistic kid looking to kill animals all yeah, the time. Yeah. Like, like that, like <laughs> no. I knew I was a hunter I, because I was, <laughs> I was killing bugs in the backyard. Yeah. <laughs> no, I wasn't, I wasn't plucking the wings off of right, flies. Okay. Um, no, it was more like there's just something in me that the the, the, the nature of the pursuit and the chase, and mm. I loved animals. And um, in fact, I had a really hard time. We're going way off tangent already. This is great. <laughs> uh, I had a really hard time as a child reconciling my desire to pursue and to hunt with my with my love for animals. I actually wanted to be a veterinarian when I was a kid, and so I had this crisis moment when I was like in grade six or seven. Was like, I want to hunt so badly, but I love animals. And that was the, that was my crisis point with, yeah. with hunting originally. And, um, and so kind of working through that fast forwarding a few years, because my dad actually didn't hunt growing up. We, he taught me how to enjoy the outdoors. We went on fishing trips. We went on week long trips up into the caribou and, you know, with a fishing rod in hand. And I, and I lived for those times. Like mm. my connection to the outdoors started in that place with my dad. So that part of it was passed down, but, um, I actually had a youth pastor um, in, uh, at, at back in the day, South Hill church, who was a passionate hunter, bow mm. hunter and rifle hunter. 
and he infused his love for the outdoors with his youth group. He took us on excursions as a youth group. Mm-hmm. We went winter camping at Manning Park. We went up to Porto Cove in the middle yeah. of winter and camped, and, and he infused that love for us. And then for those of us that expressed an interest, he actually took us hunting. And so my first animal that I killed, which was a black bear, uh, was with him when I was 17 or 18 years old. Yeah. And he mentored me. He took me on my first couple of trips and kind of taught me, started my, my, my journey into the kind of the ethic of how to hunt and, and how to do these things. And I think the other thing that is really prohibitive around people getting into hunting or passing it down is it's a huge learned skill. Like you can't just, as you, as you expressed, you can't just walk out into the woods and call yourself a hunter. <laughs> like there's, there is, there is gear, there is knowledge around animal behavior. Right. There is, you know, characteristics, personality traits, you need to really foster and hone to become a hunter. And so this, this, the learning curve is steep, right? Yeah. It's huge. B- before we get too far into your story here, I do want to point out that in my hand, I'm holding a piece of bear, bear chorizo. Yep. Is that right, Paul? Um, red wine chorizo made with bear meat. Yes. Red wine trees are made with bear meat. And I don't want to say that Paul's my favorite guest I've had on this season, but no other guest brought me uh, bear meat. Uh, and it's delicious. And if I start sweating profusely during the, our time together, uh, it's because I'm eating bear meat. Uh, but this has been amazing. And so th- I'll be eating this uh, w- while we talk. This was shot recently. Uh, that was a couple of years ago. And I, in fact, actually, there's a story behind it that. shot a couple of years ago. I plopped it in my yeah, mouth. Yeah, that's right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Sorry, I should. <laughs> um, so sausage in particular, you can keep in the freezer for, for a while. And it's vacuum packed, all the rest of it. it you're safe. Don't worry. Um, but that, that, that bear actually was the first big game animal that I shot with my two boys. Uh, and my dad, as it were. So there was three generations mm. involved in that. And it was kind of a special moment in my starting to grow up my boys into the tradition of hunting and, and exposing them to that. And so it was a special moment for us. And now you get to partake in it. So talk to me for those uh, who who are reading sort of the, the caption of this video right now, we potentially have your last name. There's Paul Fast Jr. This is a Mennonite last name. Yep. Paul, you're a Mennonite. And for those who are theologically inclined listening oh, you're to, our, go to guns, our, 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 well, we have to go to guns. Those who are theologically inclined listening right now, here's a Mennonite who owns a gun. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is blasphemy. Is, <laughs> is. is, is this not yeah. like the worst thing you could do as a Mennonite? I, I hide them when the conference uh, <laughs> detectives come around. Um, yeah. And I think, um, you know, rightly so. There's a lot of questions being asked about gun ownership. And as Christians, I think it's a good question to ask ourselves. Yeah. Um, guns were made historically for two reasons. And, that, and one was uh, to kill people and the other one was to kill animals. And so I think that um, we need to be careful not to dismiss gun ownership under the views of uh, events that occur with guns that we shouldn't be condoning, which is the killing of people and which our confession of faith has specific things that says about mm-hmm. with pacifists and, and all that. Um in my view, a gun, a rifle is a tool and it can be used for, for a variety right. of things. And it, it depends right. on how you want to use it. Right. Um, and for me, I've never had an issue with that because that tool that I, see, that I have in my, in my um, storage room, it has a very intentional purpose. And that tool in particular is built and designed for that purpose. It's not right. built to kill people. It's built right. to... So this is not like a... a uh, it's not an AR Bushmaster, whatever. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. That's, you, I was going to say AR Bushmaster. Yeah. That was what I was going <laughs> to reference. I took the words out of my mouth yeah. there, yeah. Paul. Yeah. Classic uh, killing people gun. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think, you know, my personal view on this is that we should be asking hard questions about whether those mm. types of weapons should exist in society and whether they should be made available to the average person because I don't think there's a purpose for them. Yeah. Um, 
but I do think there is a role for rifle as a tool to facilitate hunting. And I think it's uh, from, I, I don't personally have a theological issue with that. Yeah. So let's just talk. I mean, we're in the city of Vancouver right now. And so I have a brother-in-law from the, uh, from the Southern United States, a sister-in-law from the Southern United States. And in their context, to be a Christian who hunts is sort of like, I mean, to be a, like a, a human being. Yeah. In Vancouver, Canada, BC, we live in this weird tension of being an urban center, an yeah. urban center that in many ways is progressive in how we think about a lot of different things. And at the same time, we exist as a city within a broader province that is largely rural yeah. and thinks about things uh, quite differently than, say, Vancouver and the greater Vancouver yeah. area. How have you felt maybe other people's um, unease or distaste towards uh, your hobby? Have you felt that at all in yep. the city of Vancouver? Yeah. And, and, and when has that shown up? For sure. I mean, I think it shows up in the public rhetoric uh, and in the in the newspapers you read. And, um, and I've experienced that kind of dichotomy of urban and rural very strongly. Mm. And it starts when I, when I load up my pickup truck and I head out of the city and I head to, you know, wherever I'm hunting and it's a completely different world. So and all, all glares as you drive out of the city, yeah, but right. then you yeah. reach Abbotsford and yeah. it's just thumbs up <laughs> yeah, exactly. and howdy partner. Yeah. yeah. As soon as you pass the Cabela's on the number one highway, <laughs> right, it's right, all green lights right, from there. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not one of those hunters that is going to throw a big, you know, a dead moose in the back of my truck with the rack sticking out and drive through downtown Vancouver. Like, that's not right. who I am. And I, I don't think that's a, a, an appropriate way for us to engage with the non-hunting community. Um, what I would say, though, is that as much as there has been, I would say, generally a more negative view of hunting in Vancouver proper, I have also seen a shift mm. and that shift in opinion has largely been related to um, the consumption of food and how food is procured Yeah, because there's been a heightened sense of awareness around that, rightly so. And I think it's good. Um, and in fact, I think it's one of the strongest reasons for why people should start to hunt. And, and so I think I've seen that and, and largely the conversations I get about hunting have all been around food procurement and mm -hmm. how do you actually take care of the food? Like, what does it taste like? Uh, who prepares it? You know, how much meat do you get? And, and all those things. And there's a lot of curiosity around that. And I would say a general growing acceptance of hunting based on that fact. Right. Have, have you seen an uptick in hipster hunters uh, in recent years? Um, you know, it's is, it, is that a derogatory term? <laughs> well, I think you're labeling hipsters <laughs> a little bit when you say that, but right. you know, um, I would say generally there's been a, you've seen, for example, the rise of uh, programs like meat eater, that the tremendous growth, like explosion in popularity of programs like that, which are engaging the non-hunting community around issues of hunting. Even in Vancouver here, um, places like Eat Wild on Main Street, you know, are doing a fantastic job of hunter outreach, right? Where they're, they're saying the first step is to come in and figure out how you deal with wild game as a meat, as a product. And then let's get you out hunting, right? And, and it's kind of along that trajectory and the whole, like the local diet thing, the organic meat, all of that stuff has really been a huge... Um, door open into hunting. Now that said, there is still a segment of like where, where you'll see a very strong split in that group is when you start to talk about hunting that is maybe not as, which is a little more difficult to rationalize, which is around predator control, our role as, you know, um, what in wildlife management, all those kinds of things. Um, that's where you start. And you saw this most recently in the closure of the grizzly, grizzly bear hunt, right? Where John Horgan's came out specifically and said, um, that this decision to shut down the grizzly bear hunt was not being made on ecological or environmental 
um, reasoning. It was being made on social grounds. Interesting. He, he literally came out and said that. And so that's where you start to see that this kind of moral influence from the city starting to affect hunting policy and, and the perception of what hunting is as a, uh, as a lifestyle. That's really interesting. Um, sorry, I forgot where we, I was just so enthralled. By saying that, Paul, I totally forgot where we were going uh, here. Um, here. Here we are. So when you think about uh, hunting and specifically as a follower of Jesus, what are the sort of scriptural uh, principles? Maybe there's a passage. Maybe it's David describe, be, like, describing, you know, fleeing from someone as a hunted prey. What What's the verse or is there not a verse that you go to to be like, this is a guiding uh, like, 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 like guiding light or a guiding passage or principle. You know, I, this. I, I, um, I was thinking about this over the course of the last week and I, and I did some quick research and I realized there's actually only like two instances where actual hunters are actually named in the Bible. Right. So Esau and Nimrod, which yeah. is like not really two characters you want to yeah. exemplify, the, yeah. <laughs> you know, hold up there. But anyways, that aside, there's no specific verse. Uh, it, what it is, is, is an understanding that roots back to the creation story about our role in creation and creation care. And so I think you need to start there. And for me, it starts with uh, an understanding of how God created the world, which is this incredibly profound, intricate, intentional, designed way, right? Like every, every thing, every living, breathing thing has a role to play in that. And so he makes the world in this manner, and then he inserts human beings. And he doesn't create them as kind of these separate entities that are floating out here. Mm-hmm. He literally creates them from the dust of the earth, mm-hmm. right? The Bible says, like, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. Mm-hmm. Like we, and, it, and he describes people as creatures in the creation story. And I think it's important because the way then, and then he gives man a set of tasks, right? He says, you shall have stewardship over, you shall have dominion over, you shall name things. Like, and it describes this role of man as the caretaker, people as the caretaker. And for me, um, hunting is a part of being a caretaker of the environment. Firstly, because as hunters, we are so deeply integrated into the natural cycle of things, into the natural world. And we have a, we have a profound understanding of what the interconnectedness of things and our role in it. And, and because I don't think we can just remove ourselves from that. And this is probably where you get, uh, a divergence of thought, particularly in modern environmental theory, where, there's a strong there's a pe- group of people that would say the world is better without human beings in it and we should preserve as much of it without humans involvement in it as possible right. and just let nature do its thing and right. nature goes through its cycles and courses i i don't i don't see that i don't see that in the bible i see that we are called to be a part of nature and to to look after it and yeah. once we accept that role hunting plays a role in that because yeah. we can't just remove ourselves from the responsibility of like what it means when we influence wildlife populations as civilization. Right. We have a direct cause and effect relationship with the wildlife population based on how we live our lives. Hmm. And we can no longer just kind of step back from that and say, well, we've had this impact and now we're just going to let nature do its thing because we've seen, uh, i give you a specific example and tell me, tell me if I'm nerding out too much here. No, this is great. Details. Um, but in as long North, as you keep on feeding me bear sausage, you can talk about whatever right. you want. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, in Northern BC, when we fly, when we fly into our hunting destination with this little, um, plane, you look over the landscape and, and within a certain radius of 
the, the towns and the highways, you see these networks of what are called seismic exploration lines, which are for the oil and gas industry. Mm. It's essentially like little, you know, 10 meter wide strips of land that are cut clear cut through the bush and they're straight as an arrow. And when they started implementing, these are for, for gas and oil exploration. When they started cutting these things in within sort of four to five years, they saw a spike in the wolf population in, in Northern BC and a corresponding uh, drop in the moose population. And upon further research, they realized that the, the seismic lines in the winter, the snow packs down harder and firmer mm. in these seismic lines than it does everywhere else. And essentially creates these super highways that wolves can travel on <laughs> like, and make some hyper predators. Right. Wow. So we've kind of like super superman these, right. these wolves and given them an ability that they didn't have before because of our intervention in the natural landscape. And so now we have a choice. We can either, you know, as human beings, as stewards of the earth, we can yep. step back from that and say, well, see you later, Moose, you're on your own. Right. Or we have to take a more active role in that. And that's a, that's a really controversial subject, right? right? right. Um, but it just goes to show you, like, we, man has an impact. We as human beings have yep. an impact when you, if you drive a car, if you eat grain-based foods, if you eat beef, you have an impact on the natural world. Right. Right. And we need to start taking accountability for that. I think that's really good because I think what you're talking about, Paul, is rooted in that Genesis 1, sort of 26 to 28, and God blessed them and God said yeah. to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, yeah. uh, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so the idea there in the Genesis text is not that we uh, rape and pillage. Yeah. That's not the idea. That we abed and shamar, those are the, the Hebrew words that I'm butchering uh, for us now, uh, to, to tend and to, to keep. And so the yeah. idea is more like picture a garden of like, you know, wildness. I don't know if you guys have a garden at your house. Are you a gardener, Paul? Oh, it, well, it, we have a garden. It's wild, but it's because it's unkempt. Right, <laughs> it's right. Unkempt. And, and so like, how do you create flourishing in that garden? Yeah. You put things in rows, you you pull weeds, there's a tending and keeping to it. And the same principles at work here in Genesis 1, yeah. that in order for creation to flourish, humanity has been given this task, not, again, not to be over in a in an exploitative way, yeah. but to tend and to keep it like we would uh, in the garden. And so yeah. I think that's our foundational theology. But even, you know, I was doing some reading as well this week and I, you know now I'll nerd out in response to nerding out so we'll nerd out together uh, in church history there's examples of, of hunters mm -hmm. and hunting in church history and so uh, some people listening right now might know the Cappadocian fathers they also might not know who they are, but these are these big-time theologians in the early church Basil, the two Gregories and their sister Macrina but there's a fourth one. Sorry, yeah. There, there's a fifth one, actually. And his name's Necratius. He was the brother to all these sort of great theologians. And Necratius was a hunter. Hmm. And this was Necratius' deal. So they were forming these monastic communities in the early church. And Macrina, uh, the sister of these Cappadocian fathers, was forming a, a monastic community. And Necratius was a hunter. And he would go and hunt meat to bring, not only to the peoples in this monastic community, but to the poor people as well. Mm -hmm. And he actually died, you know, it's not funny, but he died in a hunting accident. This is one of the early accounts of a hunting accident yeah, yeah. Uh, death. Necratius dies in this way. So you see, even in the early stages of the church history, Necratius, as hunter, used hunting in a way, again, not to pillage, yeah. uh, not to have uh, improper dominion over creation, yeah. but to feed uh, people who are needy, yeah. uh, to do something that served uh, in a responsible way. Anyway, so that, yeah. that, that's my nerding out in response to your nerding out. Well, and I think it's important to acknowledge, Jake, that um, 
there has been times in our history where Christians and non-Christians alike have taken the, this dominion theology too far and it's become exploitive, right? And we've used it as an excuse at certain times in history to, to, to sort of the rape and pillage of our natural environment. Um, and, I, and that's not what I think is a, a correct reading of the, the notion of stewardship in the Bible, right? Yeah. Uh, I think it's much more... Um, it, the, the notion of stewardship that I see in the Bible is one which which looks at creation in the same way that God did, which is this incredibly beautifully designed as is creation, right? That doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, all of it put into neat rows, but we can, we can enjoy it for what it is uh, and our role in that. Right. So what would you say to people who say, Hey, I hear what you're saying. You should just hunt invasive species then. So we think about the lionfish in the Gulf of Mexico right yeah. now. We should just go get the lionfish out of there. Um, uh, feral hogs in Texas, yeah. right? I don't know if you saw this thing. You can fly in a helicopter. Yeah. Do you see this? Yeah, yeah. You can fly in a helicopter yeah. and shoot feral hogs from a helicopter, like just by the hundreds yeah. with uh, like with the AR-15 that we were talking yeah. about before. You can just yeah. shoot these feral hogs because they're an invasive species that, species, sorry, that just destroy things. Uh, what, what else do I have here? I have a whole bunch of them listed here. Um, what else? Uh, Burmese pythons yeah. in Florida, like going yeah. and finding these huge pythons. So what would you say to that person? It's like, okay, like, you know, the moose isn't, you know, ruining anything. Just leave the yeah. moose alone. Just yeah. kill these things that are ruining the ecosystems. Yada yada yada. Yeah. Well, I think it's important that um, the word, the term, the definition of what an invasive species is, you got to be careful about because okay. there's a there's I think an ecological term for that, and then there's a, um, a a popularized version of that, which is something that annoys you that you think is a pest, <laughs> right? Right. right. <laughs> like right. You know. I'm not right. going to go down that rabbit hole, but no. um, like Brett Landry is an invasive species <laughs> okay. in my life. Right. Got yeah. it. Okay. Well, I'm glad you said it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think um, what's important to recognize is like there's um, it would be hard to classify a completely natural environment today where something wasn't already an invasive species. Like mm. the white-tailed deer in BC it could be considered an invasive species because it was not native to this area. And now it's flourishing like it is almost everywhere else in North America. Um, you could say the same thing. Moose never existed in the lower part of the province until we started forestry practices. And then they started moving in the clear cuts created room for those species to migrate down. And so we have altered the natural landscape beyond what it was created to be. And so how we classify invasive species, I think you, start to, you need to be really care careful about mm -hmm. how you do that. Um, there are certainly, and so what I would advocate for is uh, like a science-based approach to how we manage uh, populations, whether they're considered invasive or not. If there's not enough moose to sustain a hunt, we should not be hunting moose. Right. If there's too many of a certain animal, we should open up the bag limits for those animals. Right. And we should learn to like that kind of meat. Right. Right. Uh, that, that's what I would advocate for. And I will be the first one to put down my rifle and not shoot a particular animal if it's if the population is in, is in threat. Because mm. I, I, I love the idea of that animal being around longer more than I need to shoot a particular animal in a particular moment. Well, I mean, that goes back to a controversial sentiment, whereas, you know, hunters are perhaps the, the, the biggest environmentalists. Yeah. Or, you know, as like yeah. you classified it by environmentalists as conservationists. Yeah. Because they're different yeah. uh, in some way. And so I know Steve Ranella, other guys yeah. uh, would, would talk about that. I want to get away from the big sort of th like theory and the big sort of biblical theology of hunting. Because yeah. I think there are legitimate grounds to hunt as a follower of Jesus. I think we've established yeah. that hopefully. Well, Jake, you'd be in hot water if you said otherwise. Yeah, well, yeah, with guys who have guns and, and gals who have guns. That's right. I yeah. will withdraw all of my bear pepperoni <laughs> yeah, from yeah, you. Exactly. Um, I want to get to the practicalities of it, though. And so we were talking before this 
These are long trips. Yeah. You're a father of three boys. Yeah. Uh, the other day we were talking to guys who played video games. In some respects, there's a great argument to be made for playing video games uh, than hunting. Yeah. Uh, how do you justify, and I'm sure your wife would love it that I'm asking this question. <laughs> how do you justify, you know, sort of the, the two week trip? Yeah. To go hunting. I mean, how do you think about that? I'm not trying to roast you here, Paul. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just genuinely me asking. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think, you know, Daniela always, um, she always laughs and says, and tells me that I need to get a real hobby, which is like, I think in her mind, it's something like stamp collecting that, you know, maybe right. takes a half hour a week. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. As opposed to this all consuming thing, because hunting can become this all consuming thing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's appropriate that we question how much time it's taking in our life and whether it's becoming an idol and displacing something that should be more important, like family or like our faith, right? Or church. Um, so, those are questions I we should all be challenged on. How do you how do you keep a pulse on that though? That's well, to be honest, uh, Danielle is a good yeah. check and balance on that. This and is your wife. Yeah, this is yeah. my wife, and um, and I think for everybody it's different. Like for some people's life situation, it's okay for them to take off however much time they want. It doesn't adversely affect work, family life, whatever else other commitments yeah. they have. For some people, they have a much more limited time frame, and I think it's a lot of it is the seasons of your life. I joke with Daniela that the reason we, the reason I wanted three boys was so I would have an excuse to finally go hunting with, and not feel guilty about it. Right. <laughs> but you know, the, the reality is now that they're of an age where I can take them along. Um, it, it's, it's easier for me to justify that as a father because right. those moments are so special for me and yeah. it gives Daniela a break at home and they're out of the, out of her hair. And so, you know, the, the two week trips that I take when we go up North are we've done those on a bi biannual basis okay. because they're a huge effort and investment. Um, and they're not something that I take lightly. And so, you know, Danielle and I have found a place where we can, we have kind of a rough arrangement around how much time I dedicate to hunting and how much I, of that I take, I give to family vacation. And, um, and we have an open dialogue around the balance of that. Yeah. And it's not always easy yeah. um, because it's something that I really love to do. Um, but it's something that um, I know has its rightful place. Yeah. Right. This is kind of more just a general question for people of whatever subculture they're involved in, whether it's fitness or video games or hunting. For you personally, how do you know that like, like maybe this is occupying too big of a heart, uh, too big of a spot in my heart that, that it probably should be? Yeah. Is that like you're watching like the fifth episode in a row of Meat Eater? Yeah. Is that like, you know, you're flipping through the Cabela's catalog? Uh, like what yeah. does that look like for you? You know, I think um, what you spend your time on, it tells you where your heart's at. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at my browser history, if you look <laughs> at my, if you, my, my Netflix watching history, if you look at a kind of a good check in for me is like, what is my mind dwelling on when I go to bed and when I wake up? What's the first thing that pops into my head? And I know around hunting season, I wake up and I'm thinking gear lists, right? Like right. I'm thinking like, what do I need to get? How, how much do I need to train for this, for this upcoming hunt? What, like, what do I need to learn yet? And, and so the, like during certain seasons, it can occupy my thoughts a lot. Um, yeah. And, and so I think those are some of the things that I kind of just check in on myself regularly, yeah. make sure it's not getting out of hand. Have you ever felt like, like you, you've come back from one of those trips you know, you're coming, you know, back when we could do this, you're coming to a gathering on a Sunday morning. Like, have you ever felt like you've had to hide, uh, like this part of yourself, uh, like from the rest of the church? Have you ever felt like, uh, like maybe, you know, people aren't comfortable with guns yeah. or maybe like, have you ever felt like you had to hide that before? Um, there was not, never at church, okay. um, which I think is a good thing. Um, I've always felt that it was a, a pretty welcoming community. There's certain, certain individuals that I've encountered along the way, some of them in church, which I know have been a lot more standoffish about what I do. Right. Um, but I think it's been more, um, 
in the workplace for me, mm-hmm. um, when I was starting out and I was a junior architect and, you know, I, I work in a, I work in an environment that is highly creative, generally dominated by like more progressive, probably left leaning people. Sure. And so hunting, that was uh, that was something I definitely kept on the, on the down low, uh, early on. Right. And I think as, as my confidence in who I was as a person and as a professional increased, I felt more and more open about sharing that. Mm. And in fact, what, is there was kind of a watershed moment where, um, somebody there was found like deer carcass in the back of your car. And everybody's <laughs> yeah, like, what? Right. how did that get yeah. there? Well, I started surreptitiously feeding people game at work, <laughs> right, right? Like, right. Kind of like I'm doing you. Yeah. It's absolutely. my way of kind of proselytizing. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about hunting. Yeah. I just like the meat. So just however you get it, Paul, yeah, that's keep right. it coming. Yeah. Um, where people, this one person at work found out that I was a hunter and was really intrigued. And all of a sudden I got an invitation to speak in an event in Vancouver, downtown Vancouver at the SFU center for dialogue. And it was a, uh, it was a, an event called interesting Vancouver, where you basically, they line up 10 speakers to talk about outlandish things that you never thought people would do. And he said, I want you to talk about hunting and architecture. And I, Mm. and I was like, I was like, Oh boy, here we go. And I, and so I said, you know what? Um, I think it's time that I embrace that part. It's, it's who I am. It's who God, it's how God made me. And I, and I, and I stand by it. And Mm. so I, I gave a talk on, um, three things that, that hunting has taught me about architecture mm. and talked about how we can learn things from hunting that you'll never learn from anywhere else in the world or any other pursuit. And, and it was great. I had really great feedback and great response. And I guess since that point, um, I've been a lot more open about sharing that. And, you know, I think it's as a hunter, I want to be respectful that not everybody may agree with my position or what I do. And so I don't foist this on people. I'm not brash about it. I don't, if you don't want to engage in a conversation about it, that's totally fine. Uh, I'm not here to convince anybody. Um, I'll feed you a piece of deer steak (laughs) and I'll, and I'll convince you that way. (laughs) Right. Right. And then we're all converts and we're all well fed as well. I'm curious. I mean, what is the intersection that you see between your profession and, and hunting? I mean, you'd think that those two things are like, you yeah. know, minimally related <laughs> at best. Yeah. What's the connection between those two? Um, I think we, we learn, uh, as a designer, as an architect, um, I, I learn from the way in which the natural world has been designed. I, I, I am a profound believer in the fact that, uh, the world has been created and designed intentionally by the, the, the ultimate designer. Mm-hmm. And I see that in everything, in all the different scales of nature. I see that in the way humans or uh, um, animals interact. I see that in the way in the way that the the kind of interwovenness of the ecology and and the worlds that I walk through out there. I can see how all of those things are intentionally thought through. And and so I learn from that as a designer. I learn about process, how things affect each other. But fundamentally, we are creatures, and animals are creatures. And some of the basic instincts we have as human creatures are the same as animals. Mm. You know, the, the ways in which hu- animals behave in the, in the natural world, they have the same basic desires around comfort, um, connectedness, mm. shelter, um, safety, uh, food that, that we as human beings instinctively have. And so if we watch, but it's unbridled, it's unfettered, there's no layers, there's no masks right. there. And so I watch animals and I, and I see the way that they react to space and the environment and boundaries and things like that. And I drop principles from that and I bring them to my work. And so when I, when I design a, a community center and I'm designing an atrium space that I want people to gather in and feel comfortable in, I design the nooks and crannies around the edge of it that I know that the deer would inhabit in the same way. Cool. Right. And so there's just small things like that. Is and there a building somewhere that you design that's like actually a wolf's den, but just for human <laughs> beings? 
I'm not sure we would call it a wolf's den. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but there's but we, you, you and me know that <laughs> that's, that's right. a wolf's den. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'd be really curious to, to talk more about that. I do want to go a bit of a different yeah. direction because I think there's something here about food and where our food comes from. And I want to ask you this sort of just point blank. Yeah. Does a hunter appreciate their food and appreciate food production and food production systems in a way that a non-hunter ever, like never could? 100%. Hundred percent. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, last September, I went on a on a ten day backpacking sheep hunt um, that almost killed me physically. Like I trained for this hunt for six months because hunting stone sheep in northern BC in the Rockies. And that's that that's a strange thing to a lot of people. Like I trained for a hunt. Yeah. Like and I've heard hunters talk about that. Yeah. But like when you talk about training, like are you walking down the street with like a, like your dog over your back? So or like like if, what is if like, you would have seen me my my wife laughs about this and she is so embarrassed by this. But um so my neighbor, a good friend and neighbor and, and fellow hunter Adam and I, when we were training for this this hunt, um we would put on backpacks that were loaded with weight. Um, like up to hundred pounds yeah. and we would walk up Queen Elizabeth park. Right. And so <laughs> there we were these, these, uh, super, um, with super your, with redneck, hiking boots red, on. that's right. Redneck stereotypes, uh, trudging up Queenie. Um, so yeah, we train. Yeah. Uh, and, and so for this particular hunt, it was extremely strenuous. Like we were, we were miles, miles off of the beaten path, way out of cell phone range, like way and deeper than I've ever been in the back country. And so we ended up killing two stone sheep and, um, we hiked those packs out there. Those packs were 130 pounds a piece and I deboned all of that meat. I took it f- from way back there and I, and I hiked it out every last mm. inch and, and I sweat it. I know how much sweat and blood right. and frustration and, and pain went into carrying that meat out. Mm. That meat is in my freezer now. I've processed every, every little bit of that meat. Yeah. And when it lands on the table, every scrap of it gets eaten. <laughs> none, none of that goes in the garbage. None of that goes in the garbage. Right. And, and I know where it comes from and, and I know how it got there and I know the value and I respect the value yeah. of it for that. Yeah. I mean, I think of like the way I was raised, the way my, my boys have been raised. Where does meat come from? It comes from Costco. Yeah. It comes from the cellophane package yeah. uh, that we unpack. And that's just where it comes from. Yeah. And, and I, and I, in some sense, grieve that like they're totally removed from this process. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think, um, hunting builds the accountability to that, Mm. right? It builds an accountability for what we eat and how it's produced. And, um, very rightly so there's a lot of criticism around, um, mass produced beef uh, and the tremendous impact, negative impact on the, on climate and, and the environment of that industry. And so, um, you know, hunting is, is a, is a radical way of, addressing that issue head on. Uh, and we haven't, you know, we haven't bought beef. I can't remember the last time I've bought beef from the store. Um, and I'm proud of that. Like, I'm proud of the fact that I, like the meat in my freezer was raised in an organic, sustainable way. The animal died a, a death that was, um, a lot less painful than it would have out of, out of old age or, or mm. being, you know, ripped apart by, by wolves or whatever. Right? right. So, um, that, that for me is an important part of why I hunt. What, what has being in creation hunting, uh, being in the community of hunting, what has that taught you as a follower of Jesus? Like, obviously, I, I can I can imagine you're you know off the beaten path, and you're beholding like these wondrous things in God's yeah. creation. I imagine there's some pretty awe inspiring moments there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I would say, um, I I meet Jesus in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Um, I meet my heavenly Father in the wilderness, mm-hmm. and in a profound way that um, I wouldn't say it doesn't happen for me in the city, but happens 
more deeply and often in the mm. wilderness. And for me, part of it's not just about being in that place in the wilderness. It's about the process of what it means to get there and the physical exertion and the, 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 the camaraderie of who you're sharing it with and the fellowship, like the kind of connection I've had with my dad, with my brother, with my friends um, in that space has opened up conversations that normally yeah. wouldn't open up for me, you know, trying to go for an hour walk with somebody here uh, in the city, right? It's just, it's in a, it peels back the layers of who you are as a human being mm. and exposes that um, in a way that is sometimes unexpected. Yeah. And I would say, you know, there was a moment, there's been moments I could point to like profound moments of deep and utter conviction of who God is as the sovereign creator of the universe that I've had in the mountains. And those are, those are special moments that, that I'll hang on to for, for the rest of my life and that I want to be able to expose my boys to as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I imagine, and we've been talking about this with each episode we've done, that there's opportunities when you're on these trips, especially with people who don't know Jesus, to have some pretty deep conversations. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, <clears throat> you know, on a given hunt and, you know, they're not all two weeks or 10 days long. Um, sometimes it's a weekend, sometimes it's three, four days, right. whatever. Um, but over the course of that time frame, you know, there's a slow process where, you know, you're breaking away from city life, from work, you know, you lose the cell phone reception, the layers of civilization start getting peeled away and you arrive at camp. And usually the next morning you wake up and you, 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 you know, you crack open the door of the tent and you step out into the world of, of what God created. And that process of kind of emerging or stripping away the things that occupy our mind the, mm-hmm. of our headspace is a gradual one. And eventually you get to the place where you start to have conversations that actually matter. Um, you talk about things that are uh, much, much deeper than you normally would uh, in circumstances where you're distracted, right? Like where yeah. the, the phone is constantly going off. And Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I imagine, especially in our technological age, that like that, that'd be felt even more profound. Yeah. You talk about being out of like cell phone reception yeah. and that being like this really disorientating thing. Cause you're like, yeah. okay, like, I guess we're doing this. Um, I, I turn what one last time craziest hunting story. Uh, this can be a combination of crazy and funny, uh, something that's just like super wild, yeah. uh, literally wild, uh, that, you know, non-hunter Jake has probably never experienced before. Yeah. Um, well, this is usually the part where I pull out the grizzly bear story, but I'm, I'm, I'm worried that it's going to turn off, turn off our audience. From no, no, we need, to, we, we, so, need to, we need to hear the grizzly bear story okay. and the other story that you want to tell okay, all okay. the stories. Well, we'll start with a good story. Um, there was a, a hunt a few years ago in the Northern Rockies. We flew out of Fort Nelson, took us 24 hours to just to drive up there. This is my dad and my brother and a friend of ours from, from Germany. Um, my brother, Toby, and, um, we, we flew in out of Fort Nelson in this little tin can and they dropped us off at a lake for, for 10 days and then just kind of left us there. So we set up a base camp on the lake and then we hiked another eight kilometers into the mountains from there. So we were deep in, in the bush and we set up what we call a spike camp, which is a tiny little backpack tent. And you're living off of kind of freeze dried food and so forth. And the next morning we, and we were hunting elk and the next morning we woke up and there's like six inches of snow on the ground. We couldn't see anything. It was white out. And so we were like, you know, okay, this is not going to be a great hunting day. Right. And so we, we tromped around all day long and it was really frustrating. We didn't see a single animal all day long and we're coming towards where we knew camp was. And these are high, high mountains. Like we are way up there in the Rockies and you're above tree line in the Alpine and we're coming back towards camp. And we thought, you know what? We probably should 
just go poke around that one last ridge. And before the sun sets, we should just poke around that one, one last ridge. And it's kind of like you're at the end of a day, you're tired, your boots are wet. You just want to go sit by the fire, you know, eat some mountain house and go to bed. Right. So my dad and our friend, they peeled off and went back to camp. And Toby and I decided we're going to go to that one last ridge. So we go around this ridge and lo and behold, we turn the corner and way up at the very top of the mountain, which is probably another half hour to an hour hike up the mountain, there's this, this herd of elk had emerged. And, and the fog, the, the clouds were rolling in and out. And so the, the clouds rolled out. We saw the herd there. We, we identified that there was a legal animal, a legal bull. It was a big six point. So these are big, mature elk with, with big antlers. It was right at the top of the mountain. And so the, the clouds rolled back in and we decided to make a, a run for it. And we... Like, so who's making that call that time? You're like... like like, I'm going to go do this. Like, how, how do you decide that, like, we're going to go get that animal? Well, you kind of make a judgment call because you got to figure out whether you can get to a shootable spot right. before, uh, before you lose daylight. Right. Um, and you want to make sure, and, and you got to see if whether you, you can actually get into a shootable spot in the first place. Like, and elk, I mean, the sense of smell that elk have is yeah, pretty. Smell and uh, eyesight and ear right. and, and um, uh, their ability to hear, right? sound. And so you have to be really careful in how you approach these animals because you got to get to within 200 yards to kind of make an ethical shot and, and be able to kill these things. And so, um, so we ended up, um, ditching our packs and we made a run for, like we basically hiked as hard as we could up this ridge and the, and the fog rolled back in and we, and it was really difficult to see anything to landmark yourself. And we literally came up to the top of the mountain and there's a, there's a knife, it's a knife ridge. And it was a, one of the steepest mountains that I've ever hunted on. And there was up there, there's about a foot of snow on top of it. Right. And so we're up there and the wind is howling and we pop over this ridge and all of a sudden the wind drops off, but it was totally fucked, like socked in, like we couldn't see a thing. And so we drop and we had no idea where these elk were because we totally lost them in, in, in the fog. And so we thought, okay, well, let's belly crawl up to the, the, like a little bit further behind this ridge and let's just see. And there was no trees around. It was like this sheer face uh, that had a bit of grass on it. And these elk, they love those steep slopes, right? Because it's safe for them. And, and nothing but rocky peaks uh, above. And so we snuck around these, this, these peaks. And I, I thought to myself, I said, we're in the danger zone here because if the fog lifts and these elk are close by, they're going to bust us and they're gone. Like, and this chance that we've worked so hard for is gone. And, and this is where it gets wild. So we, we're, we're on our knees in the snow, the fog, and it's deathly silent. And we're trying to figure out what's going on. And all of a sudden, we heard the sound of animals eating grass, okay? And, and all of a sudden, we realized that these elk were literally within, like, spitting distance of where we were. And they no couldn't way. see us, and we couldn't see them, right? And, and there's, a, there's a herd of them, and you can only shoot the mature bull. And there's only one bull. And the rest of the, the, the they're called cow elk, were all around. They were literally feeding all around. So we're in the middle of this elk herd. They didn't know we were there. We, we just discovered that they were there and we couldn't see the bull. And my brother, um, this was one of the first big animals he shot. Like he was shaking like a leaf, right? <laughs> he was up to bat. And so we just, I told him, I said, like, we just got to lock it down. Don't move a muscle. And then all of a sudden, um, you hear like elk make this very distinct bugling sound and it is like, it is loud. Do you want to do that sound for us? I will not do that. <laughs> so your, your, your listeners will, will, will never speak to me again. Um, they, it is guttural and it is like ear piercing and it is like, it is this like uh, incredible. It shakes you to the bone and all of a sudden it just like, it's like, 
it's like the heavens opened up and this thing just let loose. And this bugle came out of nowhere. And we saw coming out about 60, 70 yards away, um, we saw this massive rack, this antlers twisting in the fog. And all we could see was just a shape. And I was like, and, and I, I elbowed my brother. I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> point your rifle, point your rifle. That's the one, right? And sure enough, he managed to get his rifle up and the fog cleared enough that he could get a shot. And he made a, he made a great shot uh, on this bull. And as soon as the rifle... Uh, the, as soon as he shot, pulled the trigger, um, everything just kind of broke loose and these elk, there's elk running everywhere. Um, and, uh, are you and, guys worried that you aren't getting like trampled or something? You know, like, no, at that point, like, because they, 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 they heard the sound that all right. of a sudden they clued in very fast to what we, where we were. And it was like this incredible experience of being in the middle of this, these animals and hearing that sound and just being so aware that you are engaging with nature in a way that you've never heard before. And so the elk went down and, and at this point the fog rolled away and we were on the top of this mountain and we just accomplished this amazing goal. And we just sat there and, you know, we were, we were close to tears because the, like the, the moon came up and the stars came out and you could, it was just this moment where like the adrenaline leaves your body and right. you realize kind of there's this profound mixture of sadness at what you've done to this, mm -hmm. this amazing animal and a sense of satisfaction at having, you know, achieved your goal, right. Mm -hmm. Which is what you came there to do. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of sit there and you just let that kind of settle in and you enjoy it. You know, I, I sat there with my brother who, uh, you know, I'd been able to share that experience with and we just kind of soaked it in mm -hmm. and, and then we, we dealt with the animals, we cut it up and we, we took the tenderloin and we kind of hiked back to the, to the camp in the dark with our headlamp, it took us an hour and a half to get back down the mountain. Uh, and my dad had a fire going cause he was worried about us and our radios didn't work. And so he was yeah. kind of starting to freak out about what happened. And we came in and we, we, you know, we told him the story and, you know, hugs and high fives all around. And then we, and then we ate meat. Right. Mm. And it was like, you know, the best meal you'll ever have <laughs> right. is the tenderloin that you cut up and you roast over a fire. And it sounds so cavemanish and so cliche, <laughs> but it tastes so good. Yeah. Yeah. Th that moment. And I think this is unique to hunting because I mean, like when I play sports or uh, an athlete plays sports and they win a championship, it's pure elation, yeah. right? Um, you do something well in your career. It's pure elation. When you reach the pinnacle of hunting, it's elation. But as you said, it's elation mixed with this sadness yeah. and this reverence for this yeah. animal and for God's creation. Yeah. That's unique to hunting. It is. And I, and I think we need to talk about that because it, um, there's a perception that hunters don't care about mm. the, the act of taking a life. And we, we, we use the word killing, I think, intentionally because it is actually what we do. And we don't want to be naive about that. And I think the act of taking the life of an animal is a profound one. It should be one that you do with, with a, an appropriate amount of remorse and mm -hmm. a, a healthy dose of respect. Mm. And you should always do it in the most um, efficient and capable way possible to, to minimize the pain and suffering of the animal. You know, there, there has been times when I mentioned when I was a kid having to kind of square this fact that I was, I wanted to pursue and take animals and kill animals with the fact that I loved animals and, um, you know, there's been real conflict, conflicting emotions in my, in my heart around that, uh, growing into the, to the tradition of hunting. And there was a time when early on in my, in, when I started to hunt, when I shot a deer and I'd shot it, I'd shot it well, but sometimes it does take a while for the animal to actually die, depending on where, where you shoot it. And in that time, um, I, I walked up to the animal and it was, you know, it was there motionless on the ground. Um, 
And I put my hand on it and I realized that, that the heart was still beating mm. in that animal. And that was not an easy thing. Mm. That was, that was a, that, that I almost kind of just walked away from that. Mm. And then I realized, you know what, um, this is what it means to take responsibility for the food that we eat. Mm. And in a way that, um, a lot of people don't get to experience. And that's, I think what instills in us as hunters, a respect for what we do and, and gives me, uh, the kind of conviction that we need to do it very carefully and, and respectfully. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that's so important. I do also want to hear the grizzly bear story. All right. Okay. So <laughs> the grizzly bear story is one that was probably one of, the, and this is where like this notion of the range of emotions you experience on a hunt from elation to sadness yeah. to profound fellowship. Right. Fear is one of those emotions that you will experience if you become a hunter for a variety of potential reasons. The one I'm about to relate is one that took me a while to be able to communicate um, because um Firstly, I didn't want my wife knowing about it. Right, so, right. Um, right. There are no grizzly bears, Michael, running on the track. Exactly. Like, trying, to, trying to kill me. That's right. My right. hobby is a little bit safer. Yeah, exactly. Or stamp collecting, right? Yeah, or stamp collecting, <laughs> which is the pinnacle hobby. We've That's established right. that. Yeah. So um, my brother-in-law and a good friend of mine, um, Adam and Matthias, we were hunting. We had a limited entry goat draw, mountain goat draw, which is similar to stone sheep in that requires you to be up at high elevation, um, hunting some pretty gnarly terrain. And we'd hiked 16 kilometers back from the truck. And we were in an area that had a very healthy population of grizzly bears, which we knew. And so we set up camp on the side of this mountain. And it was a steep mountain. We had to build up a little platform of rocks to be able to even support the tent to keep it from rolling down the mountain. And we set up our tent. And that night was the first night we kind of observed that valley. And as we pulled out our binoculars... Uh, just to kind of watch what animals were moving in the area, we started seeing grizzly bears left, right, and center. Like mm -hmm. in the valley bottom, there's a cub with two, uh, a sow with two cubs down there, another lone boar over there. Like they were, it was crawling. And it started to kind of give us the heebie-jeebies. And, um, and then what was worse was we realized that 500 yards up the mountain, there had been a hunter previously, uh, like a few days ago, that had killed a mountain goat. And the carcass was, like the bones and the scraps were right. on that, and that. And there was a big grizzly bear that was feeding on it, and we could see him. So we kept an eye on him. We did everything right about packing our food away from camp, um, like not, no food scraps, nothing, no toothpaste, nothing in the tent. And, um, and so we went to bed that night. The next day we got up, we hunted, but we noticed that the bear had cached, literally dug a massive hole. And this is a big grizzly, like a big adult, mature boar. He'd, he dug a hole that was probably the size of this room into the shale uh, side of a mountain. And he'd buried this goat and he was literally just draped over it. And we fired off rifle shots over his head just to try and get him to, to head out of the area. And he was having nothing of it. Mm -hmm. So we went and hunted all day, came back and he was gone. And we ate dinner and we crawled into our sleeping bags in the tent. And there's three of us wedged into basically what ends up being like a human burrito, which is like this <laughs> tiny little tent that shrink wraps around three grown human beings. Right, right. And because it was so tight, we kept our rifles outside the tent in the vestibule. And so we zipped up the, the vestibule. It's dark outside and we're on the side of this mountain. And um, my buddy goes to bed. I was reading. I just turned off my headlamp and I was about to fall asleep. My brother-in-law is still reading. He's got his headlamp on. And all of a sudden, all we heard was the sound of a large animal. And we felt the, we felt the paws hitting the ground. Oh, this a, is, this is running, like Jurassic Park kind of stuff. It, it, with it the, is. It's with on the, that with level. The, with the, the, the water shaking. Yeah. Yeah. It's on that level. And you felt the, you felt this, this big animal 
running towards directly towards the tent and you heard <laughs> like we heard the breath, right? You hear the, you hear that kind of hoarse rasping and um, you've never seen three grown men scream like little children uh, in, in a tent like that before. And it was mayhem. Like we literally all jumped up like that and well, jumped up, we sat up, right. <laughs> couldn't stand up and unrolled we, the burrito and we were screaming and trying to find, like trying to yell at this thing to go away. Right. Um, we, we were trying to find the entrance to the tent to grab our rifles because this thing was on a trajectory from what we heard coming directly for the tent. And I don't think I've ever been that afraid before in, in my life because there's this feeling of kind of impending doom and there's nothing really you can do about it. Right. There's this thousand pound, you know, ball of fur and teeth and claws about to, about to hit you. And, um, so we opened up the tent and we were yelling bloody murder out into the night sky. And I grabbed my rifle and I was, and I stood up and I was fully expecting to kind of see this thing standing there ready to come at us. And Mm. this thing, as we opened up the tent, we heard this thing veer off to the side Mm. and run past the tent. And so we got up and the adrenaline was like up here. And so we were, you know, you're out there, like in your, in your pajamas, yeah, you know, yeah. with, with a rifle, <laughs> yeah. with your heart going to, this is uh, videotape. So the, the, right. the air quote pajamas yeah, exactly. is on video. Paul. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and you're standing there trying to make heads or tails and just feeling like this could, this could be what ends up, you know, being the last chapter, right? right? That's the only, that's really the only time I don't want to die in my pajamas. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's really one of the only times in my life where I felt that close to that situation. Mm. And, um, and so that it like disappeared. We never saw it. We saw the, we saw the tracks like in the, in the daytime, we saw the tracks we saw. And to this day, we don't know why the bear came. We, we speculate it could have been one of two reasons. Firstly, because we were downwind of it and it was traveling. It was just, and we happened to intersect it on its path of travel. And as soon as it heard that there was people in the tent, it veered off, mm. wanted nothing to do with us. We hope that was the case. Mm-hmm. There is stories about grizzly bears coming into tents because they smell something or because they're predators. Um, and we hope that that wasn't the reason. Either way, the outcome was the same. And right. we ended up, um, you know, we saw that bear later on um, trucking off down the valley and we didn't see it again. But suffice to say that day, the next day we packed up and we got out of there. Like it was, it was the end of the hunt. Yeah. And um, we just. Is that like something you have to talk about or are you guys just all new, like inherently like we're done. We're yeah, all done. No, we woke up the next morning. None of us had really slept that night because we went, we lay in our bed with our rifles on our chest and the headlights, headlamps on strobe function. Um, and you know, we did whatever we could to spread human scent all the way around our area. So at least the bears would know yep. we were there. And, you know, that's the, that's the closest encounter that I've ever had with a grizzly bear. Um, there's been other ones that have been, you know, not, not as close, but you, it, it's a, it's a regular occurrence if you hunt in the bush as deep as we do. And, um, and so it's something you have to be prepared for. Um, and you know, it takes a while to get over those things, right? Like, um, we've since, you know, we buy bear fences and we put them up around our tent and things that we, we take whatever precautions yeah. we can, but at some point you have to square yourself with the fact that, um, there's a certain amount of risk that, uh, that is involved with hunting and you need to manage it as appropriately as you can. And the rest is, you know, in, uh, in the big man's hands. Yeah. yeah. Last question I want to ask you before I let you go, Paul. Each of these episodes, one of the things that's become pretty apparent pretty quickly is that each of these subcultures has their own dark side, mm-hmm. has their own kind of nefarious, whether it's criminal yeah. or whatever the case may be, but also personally. Yeah. Like what is the dark side of hunting? Um, you know, 
I, I think of hunting and I think dark side, I think, you know, poachers, Yeah. you know, I, I think of that fairly quickly, I, but I imagine there's a dark side to hunting that I'm not aware of. Yeah. You know, and this, this is probably subjective uh, to some degree. Um, from my standpoint, there is a, there's a dark side around hunting where I see, um, particularly in North America, there's an aspect of what has sometimes been labeled trophy hunting. And we need to be careful about that term trophy hunting, but what has been labeled as trophy hunting where hunting becomes about the collection of a series of things as a collection right. of the collecting of animals to say you've done it right. So there's the grand slam of, you know, wild sheep, which is collecting one of each of the four major thin horn species, sheep species in North America. Okay. There's the kind of, you know, there's all sorts of clubs. And for me, um, like I'm not opposed to people wanting to try all of those different experiences, but what I see is an industry and a business that has developed around fostering that and supporting that and not always for the right reasons. And so you get these massive conventions in the U S that are all about like selling you the, the next level of gear that's going to help you uh, like right. fade into the rocks that one, that one more bit so that you can shoot that one animal that was on the end of your bucket list to, to go right. and shoot. Right. right. Uh, or in the, in the really extreme examples, like the do the dentist that flies all the way over to Africa and shoots a lion that for all intents and purposes is tame and behind a fence. That's the dark side. Yeah. And I think that's where we get bad, we get a bad rap um, publicly. And, and, and how does, I mean, so social media touches everything these days. Yeah. How, I mean, how does social media like only make that worse? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, I'm not one like, okay, I'm not on social media really <laughs> right. in any, any sort of a right, meaningful right. way. These are two guys who yeah. are not really on social that's media right. talking about social <laughs> exactly. media. So Believe me, me you should listen to what we have to say. That's right. Let me lay out my philosophy on social <laughs> yeah, media. Yeah. Um, but you know, in the, in the images I do share, I won't share, I won't shy away from sharing images that are, that portray me as a hunter, right. but I will never, I will be very careful about the way in which an animal is portrayed in those mm. images. And there's too many of these sort of what we call grip and grin photos mm. proliferating the internet, which tell, you know, the way in which you treat an animal after it's died says everything about how you've respected that animal. And so, right. you know, somebody, um, somebody straddling an animal, holding it up with the rifle in its rack and right. saying like, look at me and look how big this animal is, is not really how I want to talk about hunting. Right. And it's very different than the experience you just talked about where you have this moment of like reverence yeah. and respect. Yeah. You know, one seems cheap and artificial and consumeristic. Yeah. And the other seems like to have like a deep understanding of our place in this world yeah. as being not God, but yeah. being above the rest of creation in a responsible yeah. way. You know, um, Daniela jokes because when she looks at my hunting photos, there's been a couple of times when she's like, oh, you look like you're crying in that one. You should share that one. <laughs> and I'm like, no. <laughs> right. But it's kind of like the emotions are are at that level. Yeah. And, and that's the experience that I want people to know about, mm. you know, it's this, in, this profound interaction with a, with an incredibly designed world that brings me one step closer to knowing a, about who my creator is. Mm. That, that's what hunting is for me. Cool. Yeah. Paul, thanks for taking the time to come and, and talk with us. Yeah. Really excited about this. Uh, looking forward to getting uh, the, at least the fruit of your next hunt. So on that, if I can just interject yeah, um, for our listeners, because I, I do want to convert as many non-hunters to hunters as I can. And food is the best way to do that. Yeah. And so my family has a freezer full of wild game meat. And if one of our listeners does want to try wild game, I would be happy if they want to shoot me a text message. Uh, I'll open up the freezer. I'll show you how to cook something. And hopefully that 
turns the corner for you. Beautiful. Info at ChristCityChurch.ca if you want free meat and if it's <laughs> not right. already gone by the time this airs. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much for being with us, Paul. Thank you, Jake. Thanks for listening to this episode of our Here Be Dragons podcast. If you'd like to listen to other episodes, you can find them on Spotify or iTunes. You can also find sermons from various Christ City neighborhood churches on our website and iTunes as well. See you next time.